Well, welcome. My name is Dr. Brad Elder. I'm Associate Professor at Ohio State University, and I'm one of the hosts of our podcast tonight. This is a guidelines podcast, and tonight we're going to be discussing a paper entitled Congress of Neurological Surgeons Systematic Review and Evidence-Based Guideline on Subthalamic Nucleus and Globus Pallidus Internus, Deep Brain Stimulation for the Treatment of Patients with Parkinson's Disease. My co-hosts tonight are Dr. Chris Shank and Dr. Vin Shanban, who is our uh, resident host. We're joined by three authors of the paper, Dr. Anand Rugani, Dr. Jason Swab, and Dr. Clement Hamani. And they're going to be presenting their paper, and then we'll have an opportunity to ask some questions. I want to thank everyone uh, of our listeners for joining us. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Schwab. Yeah, so I thought I'd first talk about what DBS is and, and sort of how functional neurosurgeons think about this. You know, we've been doing this in the United States. It's been FDA approved for almost 20 years, and there have been about 150,000 DBS systems implanted worldwide. The general idea is to place an electrode accurately in a specific circuit in the brain and modulate that circuit and minimize side effects. Most of the, the DBS implants on the planet are, are done for Parkinson's disease. And there's been a fair amount of controversy about which target for which patient. And traditionally, uh, pallidotomy was done for patients. And then it developed in the early 90s in Grenoble, subthalamic nucleus stimulation was pioneered. And as we proceeded, although we have multiple trials showing deep brain stimulation is much more effective than continued ineffective medical therapy, there's still a lot of controversy in how to tailor this to the right patient and, and figure out where the electrodes should be placed. In general, when I see a patient with Parkinson's disease, things I'm looking for, number one, that the patient actually has Parkinson's disease and not some other movement disorder, that the patient has some response to levodopa, that the patient has on-off fluctuations or dyskinesias that are induced by levodopa. Because what DBS can do with the two main targets we're going to talk about, the glos pallidus pars interna or GPI and the subthalamic nucleus or STN, is even patients out so they're at their best all the time. It can reduce slowness of movement or bradykinesia, rigidity, and tremor, whether or not that tremor responds to levodopa or not, and reduce or eliminate levodopa-induced dyskinesias. So there were a couple of large studies that were done showing efficacy of, of DBS versus continued medical therapy, but then subsequent studies, and actually one of those studies tried to examine what the best target is. Okay, so I guess I'll go over the, the article and just uh, try to explain in briefly what we did. This is a systematic review, and we compare both targets, the subthalamic nucleus stimulation and globus pallidus internal stimulation for Parkinson's disease. And we wanted to address a few main questions. Parkinson's is a, is a broad disorder that's characterized by motor symptoms as well as non-motor symptoms that affect quality of life. And usually patients are taking medications, and when they undergo DBS, it's because very often they have side effects related to these medications, mainly dyskinesias, which are abnormal movements that occur when you're taking levodopa. So the main questions we wanted to address is there a difference between one target and the other, 
in relationship to motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease. And as Dr. Schwab was, was telling you, tremor, bradykinesia, and slowness of movement, rigidity. Is there a difference between targets in terms of reduction of Parkinsonian medications in the post-operative period? Is there a reduction in the side effect, this kinesia that they just mentioned? Is there a difference between targets in quality of life? Is there a, an impact of either target more than the other or they are equal in terms of neurocognitive function post-operatively or uh, mood disturbance? And is there a difference in adverse effects? So roughly we pulled uh, 168 articles for this review and we ended up with uh, 151 unique abstracts. Of those 18 articles were included in our trial. So the main criteria that we use for our study was the studies have to uh, be uh, clinical trials with more than 10 Parkinson's disease patients and a minimum follow-up of uh, six months. I'm just going to remind you that uh, guide, uh, guidelines, they, they measure the quality of evidence. It's the quality of evidence that's provided in the literature. And according to WNS and the CNS criteria, you have class one and you have a, a well-designed randomized clinical trial or meta-analysis. You have class two when you have a well-designed observational studies uh, with concurrent controls. And you have class three when you have uh, evidence provided by expert opinion, case series, case reports, and historical controls. So what we found briefly was that when you're talking about the motor features of Parkinson's disease, most studies, when the patients are without their medications, they point out to the fact that both targets are, are roughly equal in terms of improving motor symptoms of Parkinson's. With some studies pointing that subthalamic nucleus may be better than globus pallidus in terms of stimulation. When the patients are taking medications, there's no difference between targets. So you can either offer subthalamic nucleus or globus pallidus stimulations. They're going to have a similar improvement when they're taking medication. This is important because this is real life. Patients are taking medication in real life. Reduction in dopaminergic medications. This is important because often these medications are what cause dyskinesias. And the target that's better for that is the subthalamic nucleus, which allows a reduction in medication to improve the dyskinesias or the side effects. The globus pallidus seems to be better. Quality of life. This is very important because in the end of the day, that's a, that very, a very impactful uh, measure that we, we have in the clinic. And there seems to be no difference between subthalamic and globus pallidus stimulation. Some other features that are important in the clinic. Neurocognitive function, this is, uh, this is of interest. It doesn't matter if you improve uh, the motor uh, system in Parkinson's disease if the patients are, are demented. So it seems to, seems to be that uh, a few studies show that greater decline of uh, neurocognitive function with subthalamic nucleus stimulation. But I point out that most studies did not find any difference between targets. There seems to be a, a worsening in depression when you have subthalamic nucleus stimulation compared to uh, globus pallidus internus. And side effects in general, there's no difference between targets. Although I, I just highlight that uh, most studies are not powered to analyze for differences in terms of adverse events. So in summary, what the study found was that there is no major or most striking, striking difference between subthalamic and globus pallidus stimulation for Parkinson's disease, especially when you consider motor function, quality of life, uh, without medication and with medication, there seems to be uh, slightly worsening in neurocognitive function with subthalamic stimulation, on mood with subthalamic stimulation. Globus pallidus in turn is better for dyskinesias, subthalamic nucleus stimulation. Uh, it allows for a greater reduction in medication. So this is a brief overview of our study. Great. I'd love to get Dr. Rugani's thoughts on, on how these guidelines, as we're digesting what you guys found, how would we apply this 
or how are you as physicians applying this to your own practice? So these are specific to patients with Parkinson's disease. And as mentioned already, the symptoms that we're treating are the motor symptoms. So Parkinson's disease is a very heterogeneous disease and, and patients can present with a, a wide variety of symptoms and it's the motor symptoms. And some of those motor symptoms are invisible to people who don't understand the disease super well. The idea of having off periods throughout the day because the medications wear off. So as already alluded to, we're treating people who have had the disease for years, who have had a good response to medication, and we're now treating sometimes side effects of that medication. And so we're paying attention to how well they respond to levodopa. We measure that on a test. It's the UPDRS3 subscore. So it's a unified Parkinson's disease rating scale. It measures motor symptoms. And so patients come in off medication, take it, and the improvement in that medication actually reproduces what surgery does in many cases. So that's one of the crucial things in assessing any patient with Parkinson's disease for surgery. And, and that, that is the thing that is probably the most beneficial in offering deep brain stimulation to somebody with Parkinson's disease. It's improving their function throughout the day. There are other things that are, that are quite evident to the observer, like a tremor. And tremor wasn't even part of the focus of the guidelines because historically we've treated tremor with a target that wasn't even under consideration for the guidelines, the, the VIM of the thalamus, or oftentimes the subthalamic nucleus if there are other cardinal symptoms, motor symptoms, bradykinesia, rigidity. And so the motor symptoms are the symptoms that we're trying to treat. What the guidelines show is that there is an optimization of the motor symptoms, but a sub-optimization or, or a side effect profile that we can unmask. Specifically, uh, the stuff that I think we're the most sensitive to and the guidelines really highlight for me are cognitive decline or, or some, some verbal fluency that diminishes with STN, not with GPI. And also gait, you know, there, there's some hint that gait is, is affected. But the reality is, you know, to summarize, I think what the guidelines suggest, you know, in practice, what, what they mean is that STN is sort of the default target in, in classic Parkinson's disease with motor fluctuations in our, our setting. But where we would be biased towards GPI is if we are trying to directly treat dystonia, trying to decrease dyskinesias without necessarily decreasing medication. So in a patient where there's no desire to decrease medication or concern about the ability to, where we're worried about cognitive profile on neuropsych testing or gait. And so that summarizes the situations where we would be biased towards GPI. I don't know if I excluded any that either Jason or Clement want to throw in there. I think those are the highlights. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, when I look at sort of my patients and I'm evaluating a patient, you know, along with our referring neurologist, I, I tend to favor STN on the, on the basis of this, just because we have better long-term outcomes, especially for younger patients where I'm concerned that, you know, I want to make sure the patient gets benefit for 10, 20 years. Um, if it's an older patient or I have uh, concerns about cognition or depression, I have a very low threshold to uh, move that patient, direct them towards GPI. But I have to say, you know, I think a lot of it, it depends upon the neurologist I work with 
And so, you know, if I have a referring neurologist that is really only comfortable with doing the programming for SPN, it, it really doesn't make sense to put the electrodes in GPI. The patient is just not going to get the same degree of benefit. And to some extent, I try and justify that by the fact that even if they might have some mild depression or cognitive effects, you know, I do my surgery a lot differently than the papers that we considered in this review. And I think that needs to be considered too. So, you know, to some extent, it's hard to get full guidance from this, where basically almost all the surgeries considered in the review were done with awake patients with microelectrode recordings. And, and much of my practice for Parkinson's disease is done with intraoperative MRI with the patient asleep with fewer brain penetrations when placing the electrode. It's a little harder to, to apply these guidelines uh, and make it specific for my patients. So I would say in general, you know, in our practice, and this is maybe on the basis of referral patterns and the types of patients we're seeing and how far along they are in their disease, I'd say probably about 70% end up with GPI electrodes and 30% STN. I'm, I'm sort of curious as to what Anand and Clement see in, in their centers. Although I think, you know, some of that is philosophy and tolerance for risk. And, and some of that is based on the patients that enter your program. Yeah. I, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head with the idea that the programming neurologist has to be comfortable with the target. And it, it introduces an interesting idea about how the target selection is ultimately made. We are, we are definitely biased towards STN. We do intraoperative neurophysiology multiple tracts and neurology is present for it. And there's a, a comfort level with STN. So that's, that's certainly the default. And it's interesting when you talk about just the, the decision-making process, because I would say most patients, the majority probably don't play a big role in that decision-making. I'd be curious to hear if you have any, any different experience. I will walk through the, the thought process with the patient and we will, we will usually reach a decision, but then, you know, at times that that's not always going to be what, what, the, you know, our multidisciplinary conference uh, ultimately decides, and, and there are data points that, that might bias it one way or the other. You know, one thing I'm hearing listening to you guys talk is that there seems to still be a lot of unsettled issues in this decision process. Is that, is that fair? And if, and if so, what, what is it, what is it going to take from the neurosurgical scientific community to, to get through some of these, these issues? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you're somewhat correct, but, but on the other hand, I think what these guidelines show is at least that you know, GPI is not inferior to STN in improving quality life or addressing motor symptoms. And I think that was a significant concern before these guidelines were developed and published. And so, you know, I think we definitely had pressure to move towards STN. And, and now I think to some extent, we try and tailor it to the patients in terms of how to move forward and figure out which subpopulations are going to benefit more from one device or the other. It, it's actually become harder. I mean, these trials are expensive. And when we published this you know, a lot of it was based on a time when one company had a monopoly over this 
uh, entire field. And that's no longer the case. We've got three major industry partners who have somewhat different devices that have different benefits and, and strengths and weaknesses to them. And frankly, it's going to be hard to really compare them. Um, it's very unusual to be able to run any sort of clinical trial that would actually be supported by industry to compare uh, different devices. And frankly, you know, even when you finish the trial, you know, one device would change. I mean, we saw that with spinal cord stimulation and the SENSA trial where one company uh, compared to another, and one was clearly better than the other. And, and you talk to the company that had the worst product, and they said, well, it's no longer relevant, you know, because we now have a new iteration of our stimulation parameters. And, you know, that study is out of date, even though it cost several million dollars and took a couple of years. And so I, I think that would probably happen if we tried to to compare devices uh, and compare targets again with the new devices. I think, frankly, the only way to try and get at this is with large registries um, that are collected prospectively in a non-biased way to really be able to parse out, you know, which what are the best techniques, what are the best targets, what are the best ways to deliver stimulation in patients who have different degrees of different symptoms with their Parkinson's disease. And there's an old saying that if you've seen one patient with Parkinson's disease, you've seen one patient with Parkinson's disease because it's so heterogeneous. One of the things I wanted to ask, the, all 18 studies were comparisons of, of the two procedures, correct? And that there, so w were there any studies are there any studies that, why not include studies that were just one procedure or the other just for additional data? Or is that, is that not? Equipoise, yeah, for the equipoise of being able to grade the literature well, uh, but also allow for enough studies to actually include in the guidelines, we had to constrain it. And we drew the lines where it seemed to make the most sense. We, were, we weren't looking at, again, the third target, VIM, or other experimental targets. We limited it to bilateral and it had to be a big enough series. 10 was a threshold. So you do start to get anecdotal information when you start looking at unilateral studies, when you start to include lesional studies. Um, so to, to create equipoise, this was, this is where we drew the limits. One of the, one of the things I noticed that the two or the three, there were three main studies that were randomized trials with class one evidence in the table. None, none of them looked younger than eight years old or neither of the two big ones. Is, is that, should that tell me, hey, it's, it's time for a new study? I think there's a lot of controversy in, in this field, but I think it's probably not so much in target selection as it is going to be in, in things like awake versus asleep surgery, looking at novel targets. I don't think that we're going to see anything exciting come from any comparison between lesional modalities and, and stimulation. I, I think that's half a century ago, but Clement and Jason. Asleep MRI studies wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, like focused surgical techniques wouldn't, wouldn't change anything. You don't think? I do think, I do think we need to see some data on a sleep DBS, MRI guided DBS without electrophysiology compared to MER, microelectrode recording. I, I do think, you know, again, we have some large case series accumulating now, but I think we need to see within a target, within GPI, within STN, 
the, the value of a sleep versus awake surgery. Certainly we can offer the surgery to more patients when patients are fairly averse to having surgery awake. Uh, we probably lose 50% of eligible patients that don't even make it, make it to see a neurosurgeon because of that. So there are a handful of centers that do a huge volume of a sleep DBS because of that. I don't, and I do multiple tracts with micro recording, and I don't always put the electrode in the center tract. And until I do, I don't think I'm going to have the confidence to do it asleep. And I do think that's the gold standard, but I think that, that there are people that do have good experience with intraoperative MRI or with MRI guided uh, asleep surgery. And I think that there should be a, a, a data emerged from that. I think that's where, I think that's where our field is going to go. You know, if there's a controversy to be reconciled, it's probably that, but again, Clement and Jason, please. The way I see this is uh, there are two instances where it's very clear which target you should pick. So for example, if you need to redu reduce medications, you should go for subtalamic nucleus. If you need to reduce dyskinesias without changing medications, GPI is better. If you have a patient with a poor cognitive reserve, you should go for GPI. But the, the, the bulk of the cases where there, no, there's no such distinction, it's not very clear which target you should pick, then it's up to the, I, I think it's up to the experience of the center, as Jason was saying, uh, the uh, experience of the programming neurologist and what uh, the preference of the center. This is functional neurosurgery. So as long as function is improved to the degree it should be improved, it, it, it's okay to do subtalamic or GPI. So if, well, you can, if you can give a result to your patient, that, that's, that's good. I do want to give my uh, co-host an opportunity to ask a, a couple questions. Dr. Ban, introduce yourself maybe just for a second and then, and then go ahead and ask uh, questions. He's our resident uh, co-host. Hi, my name is Vincent Ban. I'm one of the uh, PGY5 residents at uh, UT Southwestern in Dallas. Thank you for having me and uh, thank you and congratulations to the authors for producing this very valuable set of guidelines. Certainly when I was reviewing them, I learned a lot from it and it certainly will help my practice. I do have a question. Say if Sergeant picks a target in, in you know, a collaboration with the neurologist, say GPI, for example, and it turns out that the patient does not see a good benefit from that. Is there any evidence in, in then switching that to a STN target of DBS instead? given that you know, they, the evidence shows that there is uh, equivalence in, in uh, outcomes as far as quality of life and motor symptoms and, and you know, um, medication-induced dyskinesias and so forth. Yeah, th there have been a few papers you know, looking at that. I mean, I think when I'm dealing with that situation, my first question is, are, are the leads actually in good position? You know, what, what kind of uh, programming side effects is the patient having? Re-imaging the patient, making sure that the leads are where they're supposed to be and don't need to be revised. But, you know, I've definitely had patients where the leads are in good position. You're not seeing weird side effects at low voltage that suggest that you're not in a good position and, and I think, you know, there's some evidence that's actually pretty old right now, you know, 15 to 20 years old out of Mazzoni's group in Italy, where they were implanting electrodes in both targets at the same time and seeing some additive benefit. And I've definitely had patients, not many, but maybe a handful where they've failed one and I've put leads in the other uh, and, and gotten some additional benefit and, and been able to rescue that. The situation that I've encountered a few times now has been putting 
electrodes into the subthalamic nucleus for somebody with tremor dominant Parkinson's disease and actually improving the bradykinesias and rigidity, but not getting the tremor to the extent that we expected. And I have twice now actually added a thalamic lead with excellent results. So two leads on the same hemisphere. But I think there are, there are situations where you might also consider switching targets, you know, removing a lead and replacing it if you're not getting the, the benefit that you expect. Great. My other co-host is uh, Dr. Chris Shank. I'm going to let him introduce himself and ask a question. Yeah, so uh, I'm Chris Shank. I'm a private practice neurosurgeon just down the road from Dr. Bond in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm by no means a functional neurosurgeon, but you know, I, I have been involved in the guidelines process, and this is an ec excellent, excellent document, and it's appropriately tailored, and it answers a lot of really good questions. And obviously, guidelines development is an iterative, iterative process, and you know, for better or for worse, it's something that you know we are forced to look at over and over and over again. And you know, in spine, for instance, we used to give steroids, and now we don't give steroids because the evidence changed. What What do you think is the next kind of the next frontier, and this doesn't have to be, but what is sort of the next area where you think in functional neurosurgery, we will have sort of guidelines level evidence to help those of us who are, you know, don't spend our entire lives studying this, that, that where we'll have guidelines level evidence that might help direct our practice. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's shifting, you know, I think what Brad mentioned before, it's frankly going to be hard to develop more class one evidence to fund those sorts of studies. I mean, I think when I'm looking at the literature and, and where I see the field going, it's, it's how are things going to change? How do these questions change? And how do we answer them when the technology is changing, where we're looking at closed loop stimulation or directional currents? current steering for programming, and uh, we're looking at potentially asleep versus awake with multiple microelectric recording tracks. Is that going to change the cognitive risks? Is, this, is that going to change our patient selection moving forward? Th those are going to be difficult questions to answer because I don't know that we're going to be able to see randomized controlled trials to try and develop those bodies of evidence. Jason, you said this earlier, but I, I think it, it needs to be echoed and emphasized. But what we need more than another level one paper right now is a really robust registry. If we could get a registry that could contain imaging data, electrophysiology, implant data, post-operative targeting, and patient patient metrics. I think we but I think I'm not sure if you know, there's I don't know I don't know where the status is the Neuropoint Alliance with with your subspecialty, but I, there may be opportunities for that in the future. I'm actually on the steering committee for the uh, RAD PD registry. So we are doing that um, at a number of centers, including ours, um, trying to look at uh, DBS for Parkinson's. But I think um, that, that really hits the nail on the head. I mean, having a registry, I think that's a whole lot of work, but the, the potential payout is, is huge, I think. Yeah. I, I think registry is our key, and uh, this is happening for diseases that we treat in functional neurosurgery that are relatively rare, for example, to rats and other mm -hmm. disorders that you're not going to have enough numbers for an RCT. And even, for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, you have RCTs with class one evidence, but only a handful of patients treated, like uh, less than two dozen. 
for example, in these guidelines that we published, the, the Parkinson's guidelines that we just presented, some adverse effects, you don't have a significant difference between targets, but clearly one target has a four-fold higher profile of this adverse effect or, or that adverse effect, and it just didn't reach statistical significance because of the numbers. So if a registry, you also uh, take that into account and uh, you, have, you can do a better job for sure, for certain uh, instances. So maybe one of the bonus take-home messages for our listeners is to keep your ear to the ground. And, and if your institute is potentially becoming involved in a registry to uh, look to participate. Well, uh, we've had a, a great discussion. I want to first, firstly congratulate each of the authors that we have with us. These writing a guidelines paper, especially one this high quality is a monumental amount of work. And, and you, the author, should, should surely be congratulated. I also want to thank you for participating in this podcast. This was a great discussion. I, the, I think this helps uh, listeners to, to understand the, the manuscript. I think it helps them to understand uh, all of the thought processes that went behind coming up with the recommendations from the manuscript. And uh, I, I truly appreciate your time and, and giving up a portion of your evening tonight. With that, uh, I'll, we'll go ahead and to winding down the podcast. Thank you uh, to our listeners for listening tonight, and I uh, hope everyone has a great night.